0: Hi, everybody, Alex again for another great edition, opening 2022 episode of the Millennium Live podcast series. Got a lot of good stuff coming to you this way. As you guys know, I like to jump into our podcast series when we're able to bring on someone like our guest today, Barry Klarberg, who's had an amazing career in the private wealth management sector and who has a lot of interesting things to discuss, probably as it relates to a lot of things that we talk about through our events and through other things that we do when it comes to leadership and when it comes to having to make big decisions. Uh, So I'm really excited. Just a side note, I'm friends with Barry's oldest son, Matt, who's a great guy who also works with Barry uh, inside the business. So did you give you an idea about Barry's background before we start? Barry is what you would call a American businessman. He is a professional business and wealth manager for athletes entertainers and high net worth individuals. Uh, He's the founder and CEO of Monarch Business and Wealth Management, which is a full service firm and family office that specializes in providing business and wealth management services. In January of this year, so recently, Barry sold Monarch Business and Wealth Management, which again, a financial planning firm for high net worth individuals to MAI Capital and Galway Holdings, a company that, as I understand, has about 12.2 billion assets under management. We're going to talk to Barry about that and why he did that and what went into the decision making on that. And now he holds the role at MAI as the senior managing director. Barry has managed several prominent individuals, including a lot of people that will be familiar to to our listeners. Justin Timberlake, Alec Monopoly, Russell Simmons, DJ and record producer Cascade, NASCAR champion Kyle Busch, professional tennis player model Anna Kornikova, NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry, MLB All-Star and home run champion Jose Batista. Jay Williams from the NBA, MLS All-Star and Captain of the United States Men's National Soccer Team, Michael Bradley, and and Mark Messier, uh, who a lot of New Yorkers are familiar with, uh, NHL Hall of Famer. Barry holds an ownership stake in three American professional sports franchises, one being the hometown New York Yankees. He also has a a stake in the New York City Football Club and the Las Vegas Golden Knights. So there's a lot more I could have given you on the bio uh, for Barry, but I want to jump right into it. Uh, and get started. Barry, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you being here. I've been looking forward to this for, for some time. Great. Thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, My pleasure. So, Barry, I wanted to start, like I generally do with all people that I get a chance to interview, is I want to talk about your early years, before the success and before a lot of the things that you you did that are very well noted in the business community. As I understand, you're about 61 years old. Is that right? Uh, 60. 60. Okay. Sorry yeah. to age you. And you were basically born and raised in Rockaway in Queens. Is that right? That is correct.
1: Uh, okay. the, the Rock and the
0: Rock. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been out there in the summer. Not a bad place to go in the summer for the beach. But what I find so interesting about your story is, is that from what I understand, you would be classified as someone as self-made. You weren't born into a family of wealth. You weren't given a family business. What you've built over the years before Monarch, during Monarch, and now under MAI, what I find so interesting about the story is that so much success or all of your success was derived from decisions you had to make without a safety net. So that's why I wanna dive into what life was like early in Rockaway. As, as I understand from talking to Matt, your dad was a driver for Anheuser-Busch. Yep. Um, I'm curious to know just early childhood, what
1: comes to mind? Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm amazed at my story sometimes. It's interesting. Um, My success today is because of the work that I had to put in, you know, when I was in the Rockaways and and it was hard work and dedication in terms of school. And then I had a mother and father who are loving, caring parents who directed me into different decisions in my life at the time. And if I go back, my dad was 50 when I was born. My mom was 44. So I was, I was a change of, well, my sister who is 20 years older than me says I was a mistake or not planned. (laughs) I, I almost look at it as like, I was a gift to my parents who, who had some concepts of what to do with me at at the time and all. And they, they, listen, they always promoted to me to work hard at school. I always had, had a job since I was 13 years old. They didn't overplay the job. It was important for me to work. I did it for my spending money, but I didn't do it necessarily to, I didn't have to do it on a daily basis. My parents were more of the studies come first and your education comes first and if you want to work up a couple of days a week, I worked at a catering hall, you know, bussing tables and then bartending and then latering and the whole bed and working in the kitchen and all. So I had pretty good food experience, let's say. But, and then today, my, my biggest passion today is cooking. I enjoy cooking. You'll find me cooking at any downtime I have. And for me, it frees up my mind. And, and I'll explain how all that works. So, but if I go back to the Rockaways and all, I think one of the things my parents always did for me, my especially my dad, is that he always pushed me. He, he pushed me to the next level at a really early age. And and it was interesting. I started kindergarten at five years old, where most kids start at six years old. So it was a year, a year ahead. And uh, and I was educationally, um, I was able to keep up with the kids in my class, and I was always advanced and all in terms of, let's say, call it educational. Or, 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 and it wasn't until i got to i got to high school and i was an athlete a- athlete as well i played m- probably baseball was my sport growing up and all mm-hmm. I, you know i i remember uh trying out for the high school baseball team and there was no jv i was i went to a place called beach channel and there was no jv and i played first base and there was 22 kids who who tried out for first base there was four thousand kids in the uh, in the school and, uh, if you understand the Rockaways, it's a melting pot of Irish, Jewish, and, and African American and, and Spanish and, and everybody went to school together. But, you know, at the end of the day, you got your click or you got your group and you went with it and all, but it was in high school that, that my father saw me, I'm not saying spinning out of control, but, you know, I took all the classes I need to cla- take and, uh, He said, "You're going out, you know, you were like on weekends, I would go out and and enjoy myself, a party and all. And he grabbed me and he said, listen, it's time for you to make some decisions in your life of what's important and all. And I said, dad, I'm I'm 15 years old. I don't know what decisions I can make. And he said, well, what college do you want to go to? And I said, "I, I haven't figured that one out yet. And he turned to me at 15 and he said, listen, I took your high school transcript and I sent it to two universities for you. And I said, what two universities? He goes St. John's and Pace University. And I say, well, why do, what, What's the plan there? What's your thoughts? And, and I was open to everything. And he goes, Pace said they'll take you at fifteen, and we don't care if you have a high school diploma or not. And you can go to Pace University as a full time. Around student. around what year was this? This was 1977. Okay, it was not not too long ago, but 1977. It was actually 1976, and all. Uh, Going into 77, I was 15, going on 16, and I got accepted by Pace University in St. John's for an early admission program. And what that meant was I started college classes immediately, a full-time matriculating student. I didn't have a high school degree, and I took my freshman year credits in English and applied it back and got an equivalency diploma.
0: I I just am curious, because your your dad seemed very focused on making sure that you were on the right track. Interesting move to try to get you into college or taking college courses years before most people are ready. What do you think the motivation was for that? How, what, what gave him that idea?
1: He saw, he saw the New York city school system as limited for a person like myself. He saw it as not being challenged, wasn't being challenged enough. You know, by the age of 15, I had taken all the classes I needed to take other than gym and English to graduate. And, and what he saw was he saw me drifting a little and, and You know, not in my study, I didn't have to study. I mean, that was the thing at the age of 15. It was just like, you know, I can go to class. I can not float by. I could, you know, I was getting A's and putting in middle, minimal effort. And I don't think he saw that as education. And I think in his own regard, 50 years, you know, previous to, you know, me being born, he was in medical school and he was in the New York City six-year program, which meant that you had six years, you got your undergraduate degree and your medal to degree. In 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 this CUNY medical program and all, sure. And three four, three in three years into it, um, his dad had passed away and he had to take over the family business, which was a bakery supply business. And he left school to do that. And I think there was a part of him that was upset with that, or set, upset with himself, that he never achieved the things that he wanted to achieve as an individual. And the business, you know, eventually drifted away, it, you know, the, the market that he was in, and then did did other things. And some of the things that he landed up doing at the end, you know, it was interesting on the Anheuser-Busch side, Anheuser-Busch is the largest uh, manufacturer of yeast products. Mm-hmm. and Flour from the beer, it's a, a, a side business that they have. He was delivering yeast to bakeries, dropping, I'm um, six foot four, you know, 220 today. He was six foot four, I'd say 240, but you know, there wasn't, he was ripped, you know, and he would throw cases of 50 pound cases over his back and, and lug them up to like bakeries and all. And, and he was waking up at like, I remember four o'clock in the morning to, to hit a shift and all. And I think when he looked at me and he said, I want to make sure, you know, at that time when I was ready for college, he was probably 65 and, 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 um, So, yeah, so he was 65 when I had started college and all. And I think he said, I want to see my son succeed. And I think that was the, you know, it's interesting at the time, um, I thought, they they said to me, the only thing that you're not going to be, the only concern that they had for me was my maturity level at the age of 15. Because when I went into college, my roommates were three years older than me. yeah And nobody knew how old I was. You know, that was the thing I nobody knew how old I was until like two or three years in when I had, when, when I was actually, I was dating my, my wife at the time, who, who was, who was my first wife and all. And I had told her, and then she said, you're, you're at that time I was 17 and everybody else is like 20. And she was was she she older than you? She's three years older than me. Oh, okay. And okay. uh, I remember telling her, she goes, I don't understand how that can even happen. <laughs> and I remember, I remember like pulling out my like driver's license. Like, yeah, here, look, I'm really 17 years old He goes, how are you a junior in college at 17 years old? And I'm like, here's a story, you know, and this is what it was about and all. So it well, was where did, gr-
0: growing up. What type of role did your mom play in your life?
1: Mom was this uh, stay at home mom, typically providing me safety, love and caring make sure I did my homework. You know, she was, you know, a stickler on that. No, a soft spoken woman. My dad was more, you know, my, my dad had the, you know, more of the, this is how it's going to get done. And my mom's was more of the calm influence in my life at the time, but they so both had equal roles in, 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 in my success today. Were there ever
0: times in your upbringing where your family struggled for money? Never. Okay.
1: Never. And my dad at most made $16,000 a year. We lived in a house that we owned in the Rockaways that he built for $40,000. And today it's worth a million bucks. So there was never a struggle. We never had, because, you know, I didn't know what I didn't have. And that's the whole thing is when I went to college and I met my, my, my future wife, I mean, they were like living in Westchester, man. They had like, I remember like, they had, they had like carpeting on the walls. We barely had carpeting on the floors, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I was like, man, this is pretty cool, right? I get this. And then I was a little. It was a little about me. About was like intrigued by the wealth, you yeah. know. her dad, you know, my Matt's grandfather was an attorney and a, and 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 a CPA. And man, they they were rolling. You know, they 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 had. The, you know, my dad was driving a Rolls. You know, my dad was driving a Rolls rolling. My dad was driving a. And those would be on these people driving Cadillacs. It was like a different world, you know, coming into this and all. And so I was, uh, I graduated at at 19. I took the CPA exam. I wanted to ask you,
0: so you get to pace at about 15, 16 years old. Yeah. And your major is taxation.
1: No, no, no. It, it, It started even before that. It started at accounting in the business school.
0: I feel like accounting is the type of major. Even if people enter college at eighteen, someone tells them that's the that's a my good dad. major to take. Your my dad, dad told you me. That. My, my yeah, dad figure. said
1: you'll always have a job being an accountant. Yes, you can't that's, take that's, that, that away from that's you. The like, that's like, the saying. That's the saying. you know, and I just went along with it. I mean, I was I was good at math, and I was you know I, I was joking with my my wife this morning. She gave me something like add these three numbers up and do this, and and I was able to do it. She goes, man, that's quick, and I'm like, I just have a gift when it comes to numbers. So you you leave Pace undergrad at what age? I had just turned twenty, and this was 1981. I had just graduated. I graduated. I took the CPA exam and graduated at 19, 20 years old, and uh, was like one of the youngest CPAs in New York State history. And I gravitated to the big firms, the big accounting firms at the time, and I landed up with a place called Tush Ross, which is later the predecessor of Deloitte. It's mm-hmm. part of part of the big eight accounting firms, and I went to the firm that was very entrepreneurial driven, and I had an entrepreneurial bone in my body. Um, and And I don't know if I ever thought about starting my own business early on then, but I always looked at opportunities of of how the best way to take care of the family and and to and my clients were individuals; they weren't in corporations. And again, that came from my dad. I remember him saying, "He said, be on the individual side because you can always." Those are assets that you'll always have for the rest of your life. I have relationships now. I just got a package from a client in, in Virginia who's been a client for 40 years. Wow. And that's the relationships that I built up. If you if I ran, if I was like on the corporate side or the audit side, I would never have relationships like that. But on the individual side, I've kept and maintained those relationships for for a good part of 40 years. It was interesting. It was under when I was at the Tush Ross. My first child, I was 21. I had two child. Matt was born. I was 23. Ryan was born at 25 and Jake was born at 28. Wow. I had three kids under 25 and uh, the fourth at 28. But I remember early in in my career, it was was interesting. uh, I was at my desk and I was based out of Connecticut, out of Stanford and all. And somebody came into uh, the, the area. That, that I was working on I was an audit partner and he said listen I just had golf with a professional athlete and he needs some help on his taxes and can you help him and and I met the guy and, and um, the guy's name was Mark Osborne and I said yeah I'll help you do your taxes and all and what I did was I was intrigued by the athlete but I was also intrigued by the opportunity in the marketplace and I looked at it and I said this is like this is something I can I can let's see how this thing goes and for the firm, I was, you know, did real estate, you know, real estate taxation, real estate side of syndication. But the individual side was something that was really interesting to me. And the one athlete, I I gravitated working with him, and then it was like a referral base, and people got traded, and they landed up in different cities. And the one athlete who get traded to a city, he goes, "Why don't you come out and visit me in California?" And by the way, I have six other people who want to meet mm-hmm. you. And I remember taking Matt. And it was really Matt early on in my career. I would take him on like field trips to go. And, uh, you know, so if I went to California, I would take Matt at two, three years old and he'd come along with me. Or if there was a game in, in New Haven, Connecticut, or I'd take Matt along with me. And so my kids were always been part of my business. And today, the four, I have six kids today, but the four kids were always around the space and all. And they all today are around the space today. Yep. But um, it was interesting how the whole thing played out. So I was at Tush Ross, and they, and then all of a sudden, I looked up, and I'm the one client was ten clients. Then the one client was 20. when during during this time, I just wanted to ask because
0: yeah. I, when you left, what was then became Deloitte. I saw you were what was called the national director of sports and entertainment. Did you start that division there, or was that, or was there already something there that no, was semi-established? I started, I started
1: it. Yeah, I mean, there was something that was. The firm was interested in doing something in the space and all. And, and what I did was I just built it out from office to office and built an infrastructure that if I had, and it was interesting, if, you had, if I had an office in Austin, Texas, or in Mobile, Alabama, I would refer to the Mobile office. I remember working on uh, Bo Jackson back in the day. And I get a referral to work with him and I'd say, listen, my job is to, I'll, I'll oversee it, but I'm going to also have my local office. So they build up their business as well. And then um, the Deloitte, Merger happened, and uh, you know I saw what was happening in terms of the the change in the the hierarchy of the firm and all. And then you know I had come back from a partner candidate school, so I I guess I could have been a partner at the firm. And I sat with one of the the partners at Deloitte at the time, and and we just didn't see eye to eye on different things and all. And I remember just just leaving. And uh, the how old bit,
0: were you about when this happened?
1: Um, tell you exactly. Tw- uh 29
0: okay and you had four kids at the time
1: I have four kids yeah
0: I, I wanted to ask you quick about just I want to get back to the transition from Deloitte to your next move but I am curious you had three kids under 25 at one point and yeah, yeah. In, a, in a time period where obviously you were trying to build up your career and establish yourself was that was that a tough challenge trying to do both
1: no not at all listen um i coached i coach my kids in every sport known to man uh, listen my day would would start at eight o'clock they'd they'd go they'd be off in school and all they'd come home i'd be home probably six seven o'clock you know every night and all I'd, i i i take it the way it is I, I don't look at it as strenuous or overworking or overtaxing and all it just like it was it was it, it was what it was. It, it was. It uh, Um, I, I laugh at some of my, my kids today who have like, you know, they're like, I can't tell my kids. I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, listen, you know, just go with it. Kids are kids. Kids will grow up. Kids will work themselves out of different things and enjoy it. I wasn't all about work. I would say my job was to build a business and that's what I landed up doing at, at 29. And when I left, it was, I was an educated risk taker. So when I left the firm, I knew exactly how much revenue I was controlling, exactly how much I needed to support an office. And I knew I was always going to make more money than I did the year before. I went out and when I left Deloitte, I grabbed two young associates with me and uh, I said, this is the plan. And they were like, okay, let's go. The 40 clients that we left with within four to five years was 800 clients.
0: Wow. And and mostly, and were these, I, I know they were all what would be considered high net worth individuals, but were these all people that were either athletes or celebrities, or was it across the board, all different
1: types of people? I would say 75% were athletes and celebrities, 20%, 20, 25% were uh, high net worth families or CEOs. And,
0: and, the work, and the work that you were doing for them, because I think when people hear about wealth management, they think about people that you give them money and they pick stocks and different things. But what yeah. you guys the way Matt always described it is you guys were kind of like a CFO type. You 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 took care of everything. Can you well, explain in more detail what, what you what you were doing for them that was different than a traditional wealth management company?
1: What I refer to this family off, it's it's CFO services, but chief operating offices services too. So we represent our clients in business opportunities deals. I, I look at it almost as as. The client manager of the client's business, and without getting involved in their creative sport or the create or their creativity and all, I'm not sitting in front of. I never sat in front of a Justin Timberlake and said I don't like the song. Yeah, but if if he was in concert with NSYNC, I would say like, okay, economically, as opposed to playing in front of, you know, you know, in in front of the the, the audience, and you're losing b- back up stage. Why don't we consider playing in the middle, playing in the round? And this way we're capturing 360 degrees of fans versus 270% of fans. So that's a business decision that you make. So if I look at the services that we provide, we provide business services and business acumen and consulting to to the client. We're also concerned with them saving the money, putting money away, paying the right amount of tax. If they need branding and marketing, we help them do that. I've managed some successful brands in my case. What happens, I went from a, a typical numbers game of being a CPA and all of a sudden I'm doing like marketing things, you know, where I went from a brain that was very analytical to a brain that would be creative. And I remember, you know, when the first things early on, I was, I had met the boys from InSync. And uh, good God, um 2001, I didn't know, I didn't know much about the music world, you know, the accounting for music or the you know, management of that, but I said, I'm a businessman and I'll figure this thing out. And then I figured things out on, on the accounting and the, and the business front. And then, and then turned to the branding and marketing. And, and I connected, I remember connected, we were at the South of France and I remember connecting them that we were walking around. You can only imagine this. I was. The, four, the five guys from NSYNC and Brittany walking around the south of France, <laughs> you know, looking for a party. Right. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, I saw the big Anheuser-Busch boat in the dock. And I go, listen, I don't know nothing, but my dad used to work there. And I'm sure if I show up with NSYNC and Brittany, they'll let us on the boat. And I, I walk up to there and, and it was Augie Bush IV was, at, uh, was in the place. And they said, I said, listen, you guys don't know me. But my dad used to work for anheuser Busch. And he goes, Well, who are your friends over there? I said, That's Justin and Brittany. And they go, Come on aboard. <laughs> and we, we come on aboard. And by the end of the night, they're they're pitching deals to us about be be responsible, like being responsible. They called it beer responsible. That was their slogan, the B-E-B-E-E-R, beer responsible. Yeah. They land up doing a Super Bowl Sunday commercial that got national attention and all. And then all of a sudden I, I realized that I can start thinking about other opportunities. And then that's how that other thing, the, the other, the, the creative part of my brain would kick in. And today, you know, so today we cross over in terms of family office where we're doing CFO services, chief operating officers services, and just thinking outside the, you know, really just thinking outside the, 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 the business and doing things that are unique to our clients in terms of helping them.
0: So you leave Deloitte, you start your own business, which at the time was called KRT. Yeah, And then you sold that business in what year?
1: Uh, 2000.
0: And the motivation to sell that was what? Money. Too good of an opportunity to pass up?
1: Yeah, I, I looked at it and I said, they're offering me financial security that, I will, that at the age of 40, when I made the decision, I looked at it as a financial benefit to my family. I also looked at it as a way of capitalizing on opportunities that they can bring me to the table. And I was very smart and diligent to to realize that they put me in a position where they acquired like 10 other firms and a lot of them were sports agents and they put everybody together in the room. And I was able to gravitate to the agents and build up and continue building up sports practice and and uh it was pretty elite people uh lee steinberg yeah yeah i know i heard that Jeff morad and lee steinberg was kind of like I- is it true that
0: he is what jerry Maguire is loosely based on or is that not it me?
1: was totally he's actually in the movie
0: i remember yeah i remember the movie that.
1: at the end he makes a cameo with uh Drew
0: Bledsoe, right
1: no um kind of like big quarterback who's on aikman, aikman. yeah he did yeah, it with yeah. troy aikman and all and, uh, so I would be in rooms with him and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm working with the bigger, you know, you know, I was working with big players, but then all of a sudden I'm working with the elite in sports. Like it, it was like a different level. It was just like in 2000, it was fun. I assume it was fun. It was, it was fun. And, and I was able to, and then I had sold the in sync relationship and then all of a sudden the music business kicked in for me. I was doing music. I was doing entertainment. I was doing, I was touching all the different aspects of sports and entertainment. And then at the same time handling, you know, families as well. And then I would just, you know, my trip to LA would be meeting the, you know, the chairman of UPS meeting justin Justin Timberlake. It was just, I, I had a job to do and I didn't, I never looked at the client as being somebody you know, different. I just said, this is a job they're paying me to do. And I always put my, wasn't i didn't have i didn't have an ego i mean that was the whole thing i mean i've been later told by you know that i had some narcissistic traits back in the day but i don't remember (laughs) them i guess every guy goes through that in their lives you know yeah yeah but i looked at my business and i'm like okay this is this is where i'm going and did that for seven years and then i I did a transaction with guggenheim partners and uh that was changed that was um High level private equity coming together at this at the time
0: you sold your KRT business hypothetically could you have stopped working for the rest of your life?
1: I could have stopped working if I didn't spend money. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like if you were just conservative with your output. Yeah,
1: yeah, I could. Money doesn't drive Barry. That's the thing. Don't look at money driving Barry. You know, somebody put a. I remember sitting in an Atlanta hotel. We were there for the Super Bowl at at Lee Steinberg, Jeff Moore party and. I got a wire into my account, and the numbers were just not bigger numbers I have ever seen. Yeah, you know, for me, I didn't expect it, and and I'm like, holy shit, oh my god, this is crazy. And and I said, I can just lock it up if I wanted to, but I didn't do that, and that's not why they hired well, me. And that's you not enjoyed
0: why you enjoyed what you were doing. Had probably a big role in it. I take it.
1: You know, they say, have you ever worked a day in your life? I work a day in my life, but I I enjoy most of the days you know there are days that you you know that you're not like 100% into it but uh i enjoy what i do did you contemplate
0: at the k for the when the krta acquisition happened did you even contemplate like stepping aside or was it just like no, we're no, going to keep going well, we're going to well. keep going
1: yeah i mean listen i was handling athletes up to the acquisition and then i get hired by insync so i'm hired by insync 3 weeks after closing the deal to sell the business and then my new company is like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, we like this business and all. And uh, That's Guggenheim? No, that was Asante at the time. That was 2000. 2000- oh, okay. Okay, okay. And I was able to build that out. And those were, those were good years. That was seven years of my life that I was able to build a business, had corporate structure. It was, it was an interesting time in my life where I looked at the success that I had based on the work that I put in. And I watched how people hired me and retained me based on the work that I put in. I was at a level that I remember sitting there with an entertainer in my office, and I go, She did the Super Bowl show yesterday. And now she's sitting in my office looking for advice. And I said, I don't care what she did, she's looking for advice. And, you know, my job was to give her advice and to counsel the person, you know, at that time and all. But I remember distinctly, and I had a, a good team, and 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 I think that's also important when you're running this type of business to have a good team behind you. Sure, and to build it out, and I think that was you know I I've always had loyal, smart, intelligent people that I've worked with, and I think that's only helped the business.
0: You're at Guggenheim, and then where does the idea to start Monarch come from? The reason I ask is is because you worked for a big company, started your own company, sold that company, worked for another big company. So you've gone through it, and I'm curious to know what made you jump back into to start Monarch.
1: I had sold it to when I was at Asante. We went through a corporate transaction where they basically said to me, "If you want to buy your business back, we'll offer it back to you." And I, I in the same day, I bought it back. I flipped it to Guggenheim. Why do you think Asante wanted to sell it back to you? They had gone public. They were in the investment management space and they didn't want to be, and it was a Canadian company. They said to the people who were running their individual shops on the management side that yeah. we want to be only on the asset management side. We don't want to be on the management side.
0: Got it. Got so it. They,
1: they held on to the asset management side and they gave us, they sold us back our, our management company.
0: Got and it. They took that, that management
1: sense. company and, and rolled it into uh, Guggenheim.
0: So then now Guggenheim, you're working under Guggenheim. How does Monarch start?
1: I wish to say that the Guggenheim relationship was a good relationship. It was not a good relationship. At the end of the day, there was it wasn't the place that I saw myself long term. And the reason to, I did my job, did everything they asked me to do. And then I had an out in my contract and I landed up starting a business and I called it Monarch.
0: And it was it sounds like it was just basically a second edition of kRT just it's been with the more same, experience
1: it's been the same business all the way through ran monarch we started it in 08 and I ran it to 2022 and then I just sold it to a group uh, it's called Galloway and epic but it's it's uh, the backbone is uh, Carlisle group and harvest capital so it's it's part of a big conglomerate that I'm helping you know, putting my two cents in and helping running it all. I'm I'm not sure if
0: you're able to answer this. I'm just curious because I'm one of the two owners here at Millennium, and you know, every day we put our head down, we work really hard. We're building the business out; things are going extremely well. Um, I'm curious at, at the level that you're that you've been working to with some of these firms, like with the Monarch acquisition. How does something like that come about? Does does Monarch was it known in the market that? No,
1: he, it's it's real. It's it's interesting. So back in the day when i was at deloitte i would work five days a week i'd get home i'd work saturday and sunday or some element of work and it was client service and it wasn't until i finished and then krt was work 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 and then somebody hit me with this opportunity and what i realized is that what i need to do on half of my time of think about opportunities for my business and my partners and my staff to make their lives better. So I I went from not going into administration, but thinking about thoughts and ideas of how to build the business and strengthen the business going forward. And then what I did was I thought about having smart strategic partners partner with me to help my business grow at a faster rate by bringing in better quality not workers but people almost like a board of directors that will help sure. me through things and those are the people that i brought together and built relationships with that proved to me that i needed that in my business to help plan for the future and planning for the future is something that you can't do if you're working seven days a week you yeah. need to sit back and i sit back with a pad that on a daily basis, I just showed you the pad. And I said, this is what I need to accomplish on a daily basis. This is what I accomplish on a weekly basis. And this is my long-term goals. And what I realized was some of the long-term goals was to bring smart private equity into the business where they can help me blow, help me expand in different areas or expose me to different areas. Give you a perfect example. Uh, We were part of Monarch. One of my families had hired me, had who is a very prominent oil trader, the very big company? It's it's in my bio, and uh, he came to me and he said, "I want to buy into a sports team, and he wanted to buy a piece of the Mets." And you can read about it online. Yeah, yeah, I I, I vaguely remember this. I'm a Met fan, so I remember this story. And I decided to him. I said, "Let's not do the deal because of X, Y, and Z."
0: It didn't have something. It had something to do with SNY, right? The TV rights.
1: Yeah, they weren't giving us TV rights, but they wanted to buy us into the team, and they said it's, you know. It's like owning a base, it's like owning an apartment building and the guy next and, and not and having an independent person owning Con Ed and charging you whatever they want. to do. Yeah, sure. You, right. It's not the business model that I that I subscribe to. And somebody connected me in my business at the time. One of my partners said, Call this guy. And I said, Who is this guy? And he goes, It's Robert Niederlander. I said, Well, who's Robert Niederlander? He's a theater guy. He goes, just call him. He wants to. He wants to talk to you, and he he'd actually give George Steinbrenner the loan to buy the Yankees back in in the days of, of yeah. like CBS. And he goes, "I own 10 percent. My brother passed away. Do you and Ray want to buy 25 percent? Oh, yeah, like 25 percent of our interest, or two and a half percent?" I'm like, "Yeah, let's go with it." You know, and we landed up buying a piece of the team, and we became minority owners and all. And that was only because I was I. I had the right situation, the right client, and the right people on my side directing me to do the right thing and to put me in that type of position and all. And I I spoke yesterday um, at the law school at University of Miami, and the person who interviewed me, he said, everybody we talked to, Barry, they have a kind word about you. They may not agree with everything that you did. It was positive. And, And I try to leave relationships where things are as positive as possible. And then I've always left relationships. I've gone back and I just had a drop off or a call. And it came from a, a group that had got involved with our business purchase. And, and they just, they just referred me to like a top entertainer. And it's only because I did the right thing. Sure. If you do the right thing in life, you, you know, and when you come to that crossroad and am saying, am I going to do this or going to do that? I did the right thing. I protected people you know, in my business, I protected clients, I protected family of clients, where people turn their back on people It may not have been the right thing in my career for business, but I'm, I'm very protective. And there's, there's something about that, that I remember making a decision for a, a major client, where I protected the, the client's father in situations. And it turned out that it wasn't good for me in the long run, but it was the right thing to do at the time. But I I protect those who, who help me. And I'm sure. a very loyal person when it comes to that. And I think that's a good part of my success.
0: I'm curious because I'm a young father. Um, I have a three and a half-year-old boy and a 20-month old boy. And I, I'm curious because you had some big success very young. And as you were raising your children, I I, I asked this I ask this because I just see so many people of my age, when they were coming into high school and college, and they came from a family that had done well, because when I talked to, you know, Matt, who's a hardworking, good person, very, very grounded, I assume that wasn't by accident, because so many times I see so many families that have had great financial success, right. and most of the time, their kids just either take their business and blow it up, or they're, they're everything, they have every attribute nobody would want to have. I assume that when you were raising your kids, there was probably some, or, or was there some thought of making sure that the success you were having, your businesses were having, weren't gonna, weren't gonna mess them up in a way that wouldn't be
1: it's extremely wouldn't good, be good for them. Really good question. And we run into it a lot. And it's funny though, in high school, I was not the one who was voted most likely to succeed. Yeah, That was the rich kid's family whose son, you know, is now whatever he was most likely to succeed. If I go back right now, and if you interviewed the 20 people who I was friendly with in high school, in college and all, they're like, I have no idea how you did this. Yeah. Where did this come from? Like, I was not, I did my job, I did my work, I saw an opportunity in the space, and I went with it and ran with it and was smart enough of how to navigate through the all the things. But it's funny, though, I was not that person that people would say, Oh, my God, I didn't drive. A, I wasn't driving a fancy car. I was just like Barry, like, just do the job. And I think what I instilled in my four children that my birth children, I instilled in them hard work, dedication and doing the right thing. Okay. And if I made a mistake, and I made mistakes in my life, I admitted up to my mistakes. And they looked at that and they said, that's almost as good as, as you can get in a father where it's interesting after, um, I got divorced after 20 year, 25 years of marriage. And, um, it was interesting because then I went from behind the scenes to in front of the scenes with my children. So in the past for the, the periods before I'd say to my wife at the time, you handle this, you handle that, you handle this, you handle that. I'll do this, 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 and this. I'll be there for the kids for sports, this, that, and the other thing. Go to all the plays, do all the stuff. Drive up to the sleepaway camps, do all the stuff. I can monetarily, I'll handle it. But when I got divorced, it was interesting. My role in my children changed. That I became not only that, but they became almost like a confidant. And this was early on. Matt was in college. Ryan was in college. Nikki was in college, and Jake was in in like junior high school and all. And I went from behind the scenes to be actively involved in their day-to-day stuff because I thought that was the right thing to do. And it was such a smart thing. And, and I remember one of my kids saying to me, she goes, we were thinking that you'd be in the Hamptons partying on some yacht. <laughs> and like, that's not what you're doing, dad. And I said, it's not about me. And, you know, all of a sudden, like I was having a conversation with my daughter. She got engaged to a guy. And she called me up and she said, dad, I'm not telling anybody. I just got engaged. And she starts asking me questions. She goes, the fact that I took the ring, do I have a legal obligation to marry the guy? (laughs) And I'm like, no. But let's, and I asked her one question. I said, Nikki, if you walk into a room right now of a complete strangers, one being not comfortable at all and 10 being super comfortable. How do you feel? She goes, I feel like I'm a five. So I said, you don't really feel that comfortable walking into a room of strangers. She goes, no. I said, I can tell you this. If you make a decision on marriage right now, there's probably a 25% chance that that was the right decision. She said to me, why do you know that? I said, you can only make the right decisions if you're uncomfortable in your own skin and making smart decisions. And if you don't feel comfortable, it's probably not the right decision. She eventually gave back the ring, didn't work out. She's married now. But, you know, I talked about my other kids about like relationship stuff. And I have a son in the beginning of the, before the pandemic, Ryan, dating a long-term girl, moves in with the girl. And um, he said, let's go grab dinner and all. And I said, "Uh, what's up? And he goes, "Uh, you know, I'm being pressured to get married. And I'm like, okay, what do you think? He goes, I don't know. And I said, let me just ask you one question. When you walk into a room with that girl, are you proud about your situation? He goes, no, mm-hmm. I said, that's not the girl. Yeah. That's not the girl. And this is the same kid. I'll give you one other kid's story. Um, and you can read about it online. It's, it, it's, it's the plus and minuses of social media and all, but my son was, um, ryan he went to michigan he graduated law school and um he was in new york city living and he was working at one of the big firms and he went out drinking but they, they pregame which is like they drink before they go out drinking yeah, yeah. also it's a cheap way of getting drunk before you walk sure. into a car so he was pre-gaming with his buddies at his apartment at three o'clock in the morning they decide to go to a club in manhattan he he said i wasn't drunk or anything like that dad and some girl bounced into me and you can read about it online and it, he said, you know, you're drunk girls, St- you know, stay back. I don't, I don't want any part of you. And she said, don't you turn your back on me. And she took a, a mug or a tumbler and whacked him across the face. Oh, wow. And cut him for uh 70 stitches across his face. You can Jesus. read about it online. And um, it was in the time, to- it was in the post. The new- it was the whole thing was blown up. And, um, I, va- I vaguely remember something around this. And so I, I get a call from one of his friends. He said, Mr. K., You better come down to this hospital. Ryan's okay, but we need you. And I said to him, I called Ryan's what happened. He goes, I got into a bar fight. I'm in the hospital. Can you come down? I come down there and Matt's with us too. Matt, I said, Matt, meet me at the hospital. We go in there. And uh, I saw a cut on my son that I couldn't ever imagine. I've been around cuts and fights, you know, in my life. And he had a cut that his whole side of his face was wide open. Wow. And my wife is a is a trauma nurse in our, in our former life. She hired, we hired like the the best plastic surgeon to sew him up and all the next day I said to Ryan, how you doing? He goes, he was pissed. So he, he went from rage to uh, anger to how, you know, this I'm scarred for life, blah, 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 blah. And I went to dinner with him and I said to him, uh, he goes, how are you doing? I said, I am so pissed. I want to kill this girl. And I said, I'm grateful. And he goes to me, oh, dad, don't give me this grateful shit. Why are, you <laughs> fucking, why are you grateful? I said, I'll tell you why I'm grateful, Ryan. If you would have moved your neck two inches to the side, she would have cut your neck and you would have bled to death right there at the bar. And if you moved your brain or your head this side, you would have lost an eyeball. Mm. Okay. You're not dead, you have your vision, and we're dealing with a scar. I'm grateful. Yeah. And he got very upset with me and pissed off at me, and he called me back up maybe a week later, and we were talking. he goes, "I guess I am grateful." And I said, "What did this teach you?" He goes, "Not to mess with girls at the bar." He says, <laughs> "No. There is no reason for you to be at a bar at 27 years old at three o'clock in the morning." zero benefit of being there sure you could have you didn't have to go and you better start looking at your decisions that you make and that was something that I gave him and we talk about it and that's the type of relationship that I have with my children today of having those types of conversations experience conversations it's not about the fluff we have all that stuff we can talk sports all day but i find that my kids have come to me after it was interesting it after the divorce, you would think the father is going to do something completely different. Then the sure. mother was going to run to the children in my household. If you talk to him, it was almost the opposite where I became. And then I married the woman today who was the was the same type of person, more of a family person. And her ex went the other way, you know, you know, of, of hanging out in Miami on like boats and all whatever. Sure. I married somebody who is today, I think, of my equal. And I always talk about that in relationships. Um, water level meets the same water level. You will marry the person who you have similar likes, similar interests, similar water levels in your life. And, and, and it's relationship management and all. Like all of a sudden, and it has nothing to do with beauty, it has nothing to do with that. It's emotional security and serenity in your life that I have serenity in my life right now. And I have more serenity in my life right now than I had when I was with my ex. And that's just how I'm watching the, the transformation in my life over the last 15 years with this with the new one. I look at things like that and I think my kids pick up on things like that, you know, when they talk to me about, you know, different things in life and all.
0: We've covered a lot, which I really appreciate. This has been this has been a lot of fun for me. I want to ask you just maybe as a finishing question. 60 years old, accomplished so much. You mentioned that you have a love for cooking. If if you were to guess in 10 years from now, 70 year at 70 years old, are you still working every day? What, what does your life look like then?
1: i tell you something. I started five years ago that was a cha- game changer in my life and all. And it was actually seven years ago. Seven years ago, um, I got a call from Pace University. They called me up and they said, can you give the commencement speech? to the university, to the undergraduate school. They send it to me in an email and I immediately send it to the, to my, my kids, right? I'm like, all right, guys, I'm giving the commencement speech. And then I think it was Matt that called me up. He goes, dad, do you see what they're doing? I'm like, yeah, they're doing the commencement speech. They go, they're giving you a doctorate, an honorary doctorate. And I'm like, what? I look at it and I said, we're giving you an honorary doctorate of humanities, whatever, humane, whatever. I called the, the president of the school. I said, I'm, I'm grateful. And he said, um, can you get back to the school now? I said, what do you want financially? He said, no, can you teach? And I went back to pace and I taught two years. And I, I taught sports management. And um, five, six years ago, I was dropping my daughter off my youngest right now who graduated from Michigan. And um, somebody saw me there and they said, we see you teaching now. And you know if you ever got you know but wanted to teach here you we would love to have you and I started teaching at University of Michigan uh, six years ago and I've just completed my fifth year and I'm a professor on the uh, a faculty at Michigan. I enjoy that giving back to the students and giving back to schools I, I I have charities that that we we love to get involved with but to give back to the students that's my give back to the so-called community and, and help sure. Young people, At age seventy, um, when I just finished this transaction, my wife said, "What are we doing differently?" I said, "I'm going to buy a home in Ann Arbor," and we we bought a uh, like a bed and breakfast in Ann Arbor, and I'm almost more proud of that than any other property that I have right now. <laughs> but I will go back and I will teach, you know, consistently for until. I don't know the 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 results are pretty good. So if I found myself at seventy, I was I'm always going to be involved with the business that I am right now, but I think teaching will play an even bigger role in my life coming forward that far down the line in the future. That's awesome.
0: Well, Barry, thank you so much. I really really enjoyed this. I appreciate you spending some time with me. Congratulations on the acquisition. Thank you. And all the great stuff that has happened. And I know the people listening from all different walks of life, running businesses, working for fortune 500 companies, I think we'll, uh, will appreciate this as well. So thanks again. And um, hopefully we'll get to talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.